0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
1: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we are going to be following up the episode that you just did with Christian most recently about mind flayers. Today we wanted to take a broader look at the idea of mind control in fiction, in reality, if it's possible. Can you really control someone's mind from a distance? And if so, what's it like to have your mind controlled?
0: Yes. Now, this is not a part two. So if you didn't listen to the last episode on Mind Flayers or all the Dungeons and Dragons stuff turned you (laughs) off, do not worry. You will not need that level
1: of expertise to continue on listening to this episode. Robert, I'm sure you can give a brief summary course on Mind Flayers for us.
0: I will. But before we do that, let's let's discuss a few other pop culture, cultural literary examples even
1: of mind control. OK, In well, one of the classics has got to be the Manchurian Candidate, I,
0: a movie I've never seen, but I'm familiar with just through
1: reputation. It's based on a novel and it stars oh, uh Frank Sinatra, <laughs> 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 which I, I have to be sad about because I, I can't stand that crooner stuff. You, you can't. I want to yeah. use another word other than stuff. It's no, I'm not into the crooners. Oh, I appreciate some crooning every now and then. Really? Now, that kind of surprises me.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like, I t- I'm a big fan of Soma FM, which is an internet radio station, free, supported by listeners, free plug as well. Uh, and they have a number of different channels, uh, with various different types of like electronic and spacey music, but they also have one called Secret Agent Radio. Oh. And so they have a lot of, it's like a lot of James Bond audio snippets in between. Sometimes your tracks, but occasionally something a little I, – I occasionally I think they'll drop a little Sinatra in there.
1: Oh, OK. Well, I guess I could get into that. But the the, the crooner stuff itself I'm not a fan of. Anyway, back to the Manchurian <laughs> Candidate. So the plot, if you're not familiar with it, basically there are some American soldiers who get brainwashed behind enemy lines. I think they're taken prisoner by some communists and these communists – hypnotize them and turn them into sleeper agents. So you've got a character who has been under hypnosis, given this post-hypnotic suggestion that given a certain trigger that activates him, he will become an unwitting assassin and will carry out his uh, preordained orders from his communist overlords, which are to assassinate some American official. Okay, this is very, the, playing in,
0: in a way upon like the, 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 the very Cold War idea. Real life idea that contact with the enemy, even when captured and, and not, you know, brainwashed, that it's going to change. You. It's going to contaminate you with a with a foreign way of thinking. Yeah. And we this see is that on both sides with the, the Soviets uh, and with uh, and with the U.S.
1: Yeah. And this was also it's very similar to stuff people were really saying about things that happened to, for example, American prisoners of war during the Korean War. Mm-hmm but with a critical historical approach uh most of those stories about uh American POWs in in the Korean War I think that's all been pretty much debunked these days. Okay.
0: Though of course there is a lot of you know in any prisoner scenario there's going to be a lot of uh of psychological manipulation just by the inherent nature of what's going on.
1: And sure, that is the thing that we're going to have to explore at length in this episode is what's the difference between regular run-of-the-mill psychological manipulation, which we all acknowledge, we're all familiar with. It's a It's actually a part of everyday life. It's not just something that happens under extreme duress and wartime scenarios. Psychological manipulation happens in your job. It happens in your relationships. So this is utterly mundane. We're all familiar with it. What's the difference between that and the kind of mind control that we see in fiction and wonder if it could be real?
0: Yeah, I mean, if I read a self-help book, let's say I pick up an Eckhart Tolle book and I start reading it, I'm allowing Eckhart Tolle to write in my brain with his ideas. And essentially control who I am. Is that a good thing? Uh, yeah, I like, yeah, I think I, <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I, I like, I like a number of Eckhart Tolle's ideas, but it's, but I think we're all okay with that idea. You're allowing, you're, you're reading a book. You're, you're willingly opening the doors and letting ideas come in but where does it become a bad thing where where do we draw that
1: line where does it become the manchurian candidate well we'll get into that later i see robert you have some comic book villains here for us right
0: yeah there are there are a few other i think really noteworthy ideas some of them more recent than others that you see in fiction different visions of what mind control would be like uh there was of course a really cool one that was on the uh, the netflix show jessica jones uh, if you're not familiar with this, this is a, a superhero show. Uh, it's like a street level, um, Hell's Kitchen kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Jessica Jones is a former superhero with super strength. And now she's a, she's a PI. And the enemy she goes up against is this guy, Mr. Purple, the purple man, uh, Zebediah Kilgrave. And, uh, this character's power is that he can, he tells you to do something and you do it. He tells you to believe
1: something, and you believe it. That's a very formidable power. Yeah,
0: it's a it's a wonder. I'm a big fan of that. uh At least that that first season, the season that's out mm-hmm. uh, of Jessica Jones, because they do a great job of exploring like how this this just overpowered character works.
1: Yeah, and,
0: I mean, it, it seemed he could defeat Superman so easily, right? Yeah, he just tells people what to do, and they do it. So, what kind of world has he built for himself? What kind of of mind does he have? Like, what sort of, you know, his inner trauma, but also the trauma he lives in. His, he leaves in his wake because eventually people wake up from their mind control and they realize, oh, I did all these awful things for this guy who just walked into my life and started telling me who I was and and what I wanted to do for him. And then the the important thing too is that what what he tells you to do. You do it willingly. It's not a situation of, of, oh, I don't want to serve the purple man, but I'm doing it. No, you just do what the purple man tells you to do as if not, as if he's the voice of God, as if he's your voice. He wears you like a glove and makes you do the things you do and you do them, uh, of your, seemingly of your own
1: volition. Subject and master, indivisible in will. Exactly. Okay. So I got another one. Okay. I know you love this movie, Video Drone.
0: Oh yes, it's been a while since I've actually uh, plugged it into the old VCR, or even, you know, my torso. But yeah, Cronenberg's Videodrome is a classic.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of metaphorical relationships going on now in the plot of Videodrome. It, it's a it's a nasty body horror movie, but mm-hmm. a very smart and inventive one about this sleazy TV producer who gets caught up in this conspiracy of people who are trying to use TV programming to kill people and yeah. to control minds. James Woods. Yes, James Woods, and and he he ends up becoming sort of like in the Manchurian Candidate, uh, a, a, a a mindless assassin. Yeah. That is being controlled by these people who are, who are bombarding his brain with different video signals. And there's definitely a lot of commentary in it mm-hmm. about, about how media influences us. I think there's some media as mind control, uh, type suggestions, but he, he in the plot of the movie on the face of it literally becomes a mind controlled sleeper assassin. Yeah. Running around with his flesh gun. Yeah. Blasting people. But they do explain it not just in the mundane sense of media control as in, you know, media is feeding us ideas and we consume those ideas and are sometimes convinced and influenced by them, but there is actually like a sci-fi explanation. You know, he's mm-hmm. been given some kind of special brain waves that mess him up and cause him to lose his personal will and autonomy.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Another example that came to my mind uh, is is from another James, actually ties into another James Woods film. Oh no! So, did you see John Carpenter's vampires film?
1: I have tried to watch that movie and was unable to finish it. It was <laughs> just awful, and one of those movies that is so ugly to look at that you can't keep your eyes on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will
0: I will not defend that movie at all, and I'm saying that as a Carpenter fan. I think a lot of us have the same. Uh, relationship with that film. Uh, it's all the more, uh, tragic though, not only because of, uh, Carpenter's, um, filmography and how many, you know, how many films in that filmography we just love so much, uh, but also it's based on the book by John Steakley titled Vampires. And the book itself is that really vampires
1: good. Vampires with a do- dollar
0: sign? I think sometimes it has a dollar sign, yeah. <laughs> um, John Steakley, uh now now uh now de- departed uh from this uh, mortal coil, he uh he wrote two books basically. He wrote Vampires and he wrote a book called Armor. Uh and Armor is kind of a starship troopers uh riff involving, you know, power armor and inhuman enemies and a sci-fi future. Both of these books are are really good. I, I recommend them. They're you know, packed full of action, but vampires in particular has these the the vampiric characters that are encountered by the hunters are just really terrifying because they have this uh, at least one of them uh, in particular has this uh, this terrible uh, purple man type uh, mind control power. Hmm. So the the coven of vampires will just happen upon some people and they'll you know drain some of them, but then they'll also just toy with the others by mind controlling them into doing just awful things and then leaving them to come to terms with the things that they did seemingly willingly you know they're, they're just traumatized by the experience and the, these awful vampires uh that are parading around like little gods they enjoy
1: it so that's kind of strange the the characters remember doing what they've done under the influence of mind control yet they remember it as something that they will personally had the will to do or did not personally have the will to do
0: uh if i remember correctly it's that they remember loving it so if they're you know they're told to do this and love it they'll do it and love it and then even after the power of the vampires is left they're still coming to terms of like what's what's the matter with me why did i do those things why did i enjoy doing those things and i guess a lot of that is kind of commentary on you know and various things in life. We can right. all look back on memories and we ask why did we do that and and do so willingly. We don't most of us do not have the luxury of having the the, the mistakes in our lives dictated to us by alien or vampire overlords.
1: It's true. It, it can often feel like when you think back on a memory of something you did that you're very not proud of, that you you think that was a different person, mm-hmm. almost as if you imagine you were under some form of mind control. But the power controlling you at the time was who you were at the time. Yeah. Which is no longer who you are now. That's true. OK, but how about those mind flayers?
0: Yes, the mind flayers. So these are monsters, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, these are from the Dungeons and Dragons
0: world. I won't, I won't hit you with all the details. Again, we, Christian and I just recorded an an entire episode about them. But yeah, they're Lovecraftian, octopus-headed baddies who are always using their psionic powers to manipulate and outright mind control their enemies, uh, which is often the, the players of the game. And they're using them for thralls, they're using them to like clean the elder brain, but also to, you know, go out and assassinate people. They, they just, they just totally overuse their Overpowered uh, psychic abilities.
1: Now, is this like a Manchurian candidate kind of thing, where they'll, you know, you'll be going about your business, and suddenly they activate you, and you are now under their control? Or once you're under their control, are you just thereafter under their control? I think you, you can
0: fall out of their control. You yeah. know, either by, I guess, doing a with a, a, a skill check. Oh, OK. You know, roll, if you roll a sufficient uh, score on a D20, you can break free. But also without, outside of the gaming system itself, it's like, uh, for instance, uh, mind flayers themselves are kind of uh, tied to this elder brain. And if they happen to uh, uh, you know, leave the colony and get far enough away from it, then they fall out of its
1: influence. OK.
0: But it's often described that, especially when the the, the more powerful mind flayers mess with your mind, they are rewriting your identity. They're rewriting your personality. Permanently. Yeah. Yeah. They can they can they can certainly do that to where they change who you are by reaching into your brain with their psychic powers and there's
1: no reset button yeah there's no reset button on that oh man that's brutal yeah okay th- well that that does make me think about another interesting thing we'll have to come back to a lot of this later after we've looked at some of the research but yeah there there is often this uh idea in fiction and media where after somebody has been under mind control, they revert to their previous state once it has concluded. But surely the experience would sort of change you, wouldn't it, even if even if you were doing things against your will, if that's possible? I think so. I mean, if you remove just pure magical interpretations Mm -hmm. and you
0: base your vision of this ultimately kind of fantastic mind control on what we know about psychology and neuroscience. Uh yeah, it would be it would be this weird experience. It would be like having been worn by a glove, worn as a glove by this other hand, but you were still you still did all those things. You uh-huh. still have those fingerprints
1: on it. Huh. Okay, so well let's try to define our terms here and talk about what is mind control for the purpose of today's episode. What what are we talking about and what are we not talking about? First of all, I think we should say that we already have technologies for controlling people's beliefs, perceptions, desires, and behavior, and they're familiar to all of us. We mentioned this earlier. They're known as culture and education and rhetoric and speech, media, art, entertainment. All these things are – If you want to really broaden the definition, Mm -hmm. mind control, we're all trying to control each other's minds all the time. But that's not really what you have in mind when you think about mind control, is it? Because there's no doubt that these systems do control our minds, but they're part of what I would think of as the above the table battle for the public will. If you're following my metaphor, you know, some kind of chess game, these are all the pieces on the board that you can see. And we all acknowledge they're making bids for influence over our thoughts and our will. And generally, as long as we can see all the pieces, we think the game is fair. Right. Like, for
0: instance, if I were talking to you and I said, hey, Joe, what are you doing after lunch? And you say, oh, I have to go Christmas shopping. And I was to say, no, you should blow that off. And let's go watch Rogue One in the theater. Okay, and you would say no, no, no. I got to do my Christmas shopping, and I'm trying to I'm trying to convince you to go see Rogue One instead. This is above the table. Like, there's no mystery here. What's going on? Right. I am trying to convince you uh to 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 change your mind about a decision.
1: Sure, and it's all like that. You see a you know commercial on TV. It's trying to change your mind about whether you need a product. You yeah, see, a, buy uh, a product, not B product, be a product. Yeah, well. <laughs> You know, actually, though, what the commercials do sell you is a vision of yourself, isn't it? They're not yeah, selling be you the- this person, not who you are now. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly uh but th- they are doing that at least in a certain way above the table you know what they're doing mm-hmm. anybody who's uh somewhat literate in in rhetoric and media culture and stuff like that you, you recognize what's going on but well, well that's not most people <laughs> well i don't know i mean i think one of the threads we're going to keep uh coming back to
0: is throughout this episode is that all of this is going to depend on uh, the speaker and the listener like the, the the like who's trying to do the mind control and what is the mind that's being
1: control, yeah. Maybe the power of mind control lies somewhat in the uh, in the fortifications of the subject.
0: Yeah. What are the what are the stats for the mind flare? What are the stats for the uh, player character that's uh, being uh, affected?
1: Right. But to come back to my uh, sort of chess metaphor, what mm-hmm. we're looking for is like the hidden piece. the The way to cheat is some, Is there a magnet under the table moving the pieces around mm-hmm. without our knowledge? A way to get around our usual cognitive defenses uh, that we do our best to keep well fortified against all these forces in the world that are – making bids for our minds and our attention. So originally, the term mind control was used in a Cold War context, right? It was to refer to these supposed practices of realigning people's beliefs, values, and motives against their will, uh, often in the context of torture and imprisonment. For example, like we mentioned earlier, in the Korean War. And I would say this usage has somewhat fallen out of fashion. And from what I understand, there's very little evidence that this ever really took place on a significant scale, uh, especially in the original example of like American prisoners being held by opposing forces in the Korean war that they were, you know, had their minds changed by coercive persuasion.
0: Yeah. Now, of course you can, it it depends on how you classify these things, because if you, if you count just pure political reeducation programs, uh, as of 2013, there were still 350 Laodong-Jiaoyang facilities in China. These are re-education through labor camps mm. um, that that have like a, a political uh, agenda.
1: Yeah, and I guess the question there is, um now it's obvious that if you are in a culture, that culture is going to have a strong influence over your mind. And to what extent can culture be defined as – you know a regime that you exist in every day, so mm-hmm. if you, you know for long periods of time you're completely surrounded by people who think a certain way, that surely is going to have an influence on you people who yeah. think a certain way and tell you to think a certain way i think uh you know we we see that in our own lives right we mm-hmm. we we
0: look to we look back to say like a high school scenario, yeah, and where we all were, and then we see where we've all gone, what kind of people we're surrounded with, and yeah you can see you can see reflections of that in In each person's uh, personal trajectory.
1: But can I tie a person to a chair in a room for a week and deprive them of sleep and, and psychologically harass them into believing that, you know, their body is made of beetles? I don't know about or that. Or that football is good, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, that I, that <laughs> the 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 results are not in that that kind of thing is so much possible, or at least not widely possible. It might be with certain people. Um, but another common use of the term mind control is to refer to the kind of supposed brainwashing or reeducation that sometimes happens in cults or what's known as new religious movements, mm-hmm. uh, to use a nice euphemism. <laughs> Uh, or even in extremist circles within traditional religions. And again, the concept of brainwashing here has been a very scientifically controversial one. I'm sure you've seen this research before that there's a lot of back and forth in the history of psychology, especially in the second half of the 20th century about to what extent brainwashing is a real thing, or is this just sort of a a non rigorous made up concept based on intuitions and not really based on research. Mm -hmm. Again, there's no doubt that one person can influence the thoughts of the other, but the idea that you can engage in this full coercive persuasion where you revolutionize someone else's mind completely against their will, I think that's not widely supported. Yeah, in a way,
0: it's just too simple, right? It's like saying the basic idea being, oh, well, this person is who they are and they believe what they believe because they're, they are privy to these influences. If we cut off all of those influences and I'm the only influence, then surely I can decide who they are for them, which sounds simple enough and just doesn't seem to really relate to how we... To, to the human condition.
1: Right, and you're not the only influence. They're bringing all of their past influences with them in yeah. their memory. Yeah, it's not just, a, it's, we're not little water wheels turning in a stream. Right. That's a good
0: metaphor. No, I, we thought? are not. I always fall back on water metaphors. <laughs>
1: uh Yeah, and so it will be worth taking a bit of a look at that someday, I think. But in my estimation, to whatever extent it actually happens, this is also a somewhat different phenomenon mm-hmm. from the kind of mind flayer-like uh type mind control that we were talking about earlier, right? It's less it's not that it's less serious, but there isn't so much a real time loss of control over one's thoughts and behavior. It's rather just the introduction of a very strongly influential set of beliefs and relationships, maybe aided in their inception by stress and social pressure and power dynamics between people and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and this is very much a topic I'd like to return to in the future, especially as it uh, relates to cults, to con artists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and, and a number of other scenarios come to mind. Some of the, um, uh, you know, to get into extremist uh, religious uh, models, uh, for instance, the whole, uh, you know, pray pray away the gay kind of uh, re-education mm-hmm. efforts you see. Where Which the, are not very successful. No, because it, again, it comes down to, oh, this Person who they are based on, you know, not only their influences, but just the the way they were born. We're going to change all that just by shutting off the other influences and just coming at them straight with the prayer.
1: I think in many cases it's just taking a chalk eraser to to something written in Sharpie. I mean, you're not getting the job done. You might (laughs) smudge it a little bit. Uh, but okay, so maybe we, we need a different kind of distinction because those aren't the types of mind control we're really talking about. And I think the distinction will be, I'm gonna to try to introduce some terminology, we'll see how this goes. The difference between mind seeding and mind management. So okay. w- what I mean by that is that mind seeding is planting ideas, arguments, images, social impressions in somebody's mind that are designed to have an influence on how they think and act, and down the road will have some kind of influence on how they think and act. Whereas mind management is more what we see in Dungeons and Dragons or in these you know, science fiction-type scenarios, actively controlling a people's thoughts and behaviors in close to real time. So mind seeding is manipulation or
0: inception. Mind management is... Complete domination. Yeah, it's the
1: mind flare thing. It's, yeah. You know, I'm going to make you go over there and pick up that dagger and attack the paladin. And this is the kind of mind control, uh, where you're no longer in control of yourself. You've lost autonomy over your thoughts and actions. You feel you're being controlled by an external entity. And in fiction, of course, as we've explored, th- these external entities would often be possessing spirits, people with psychic powers or science fiction mind control devices. You know, somebody's got a little remote control with a beam going at your Mm -hmm. head and that they allow us to be externally reprogrammed. But magic and science fiction aside, are these kinds of schemes possible in reality? And if so, if it's possible to have your mind controlled in this way, what would it be like to be controlled from the outside while still having a conscious experience of thought? All right, right, we'll hold that
0: thought. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into this question and try and figure out what it would be like to have your mind controlled. So you know, we were talking about mind flayers earlier, and, yeah. and you were talking about uh, mind seeding versus mind management. Uh, I actually found the discussion of this, uh, this very scenario that involves mind flayers. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was a doctoral uh, dissertation uh, at Harvard University by a uh, humanist uh, scholar, James Croft. And this was available online. I think it still is available, but it was available as of like the other day.
1: P- pretty entertaining as far as doctoral dissertations go. Yeah,
0: it was, you know, really well written. Vi- very very long, and it did not all relate to mind flares. I don't want him to uh, to give anyone the wrong impression. Uh, he merely brings up mind flares as uh, an example, something he was really into when he was younger, and uh, using it to discuss uh, free will. Oh, okay. So he comes, to, he basically boils down mind control to two scenarios. He has the novice mind flayer scenario or NMF, in which the mind flayer commands your your actions but not your thoughts. So this okay. is one. of those where you're like, ah, the mind flayer is making me attack the paladin. Ah, I don't want to do this as you hack the paladin to death.
1: So your consciousness is sort of an unwilling prisoner in the vehicle of your body and the body is out of your control.
0: Yeah, the very, it's a very nightmarish uh, scenario, right? Okay. Like, I can't, I'm not in control. Someone else is and I must live this experience. Okay. And then the other one is the ultimate mind flayer scenario or scenario or UMF in which the mind flayer commands not only your actions, but also your underlying thoughts and desires. So again, this comes down to, I want to pack the, the paladin into death. This is what I want more than anything. Okay, This is
1: my choice, and I am okay with it. So this is not being a prisoner inside a body that's acting outside of your control, but no longer being you, having yourself or sense of self changed by the outside controlling entity. That's right. Now, I'd say both of these are more. These are more the uh, mind management type. They're directly controlling your actions in next to real time. It's not just sort of like having an influence on how you right. think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, these would both
0: be examples of of the stronger form, but but two different versions. And I think these are two different versions that we do see utilized a lot in fiction because they're both kind of neat, right? Yeah. Especially, like the first ones, I feel like a little more old fashioned. The idea of ah, someone's dominating me and I'm not in control in control of my own actions. Right. And sometimes I feel like we have a tendency to want to rewrite our past experiences, especially our mistakes in that light. Right. You know, like, oh, I was it was the the drugs. It was the stress. It was whatever is the the outside force, whatever your personal mind flayer is going to be uh, as opposed to the other. Uh, but both allow you to externalize the source of your pain. Right. Uh, but of course, this idea of uh, especially the UMF idea, this ultimate mind flayer idea, this idea that you're just hit. You would have a force rewriting your memory and personality as needed and just – and you can't even tell. It just feels like your decision. Uh, Croft uh, points out that this isn't really out of keeping with how we live our lives all the time. huh? He says, uh, quote, this is not to say that in the normal course of events, when unburdened with a mind flare, we are at total liberty to select what we value or desire. Our values and desires are frequently an outcome of our experiences, and we cannot change them through conscious effort. But to be autonomous, I argue we need not be in total control over this aspect of our mental furniture. Rather, we must learn to examine the values and desires that we, for whatever reason, have developed and consider to what extent we wish to indulge them, resist
1: them, or seek to change them if we can. That's a good point. I didn't pick my desires. Yeah. You didn't pick your desires. And yet we do have some kind of sense of agency over to what extent we pursue them. Yeah. Now, granted, we don't want to go too far into the the absolute
0: abyss of uh, philosophical and neuroscientific contemplations of of free will and human consciousness. Right. Though that's, you know, it's a topic we've hit on in the past, and we'll keep coming back to it because that's kind of the human experience the human condition in in a nutshell
1: and it's just one of the most interesting mysteries of reality yeah nobody's got an answer to the problem of consciousness at least as far as i've come across yeah
0: there's some great ideas some pervasive theories but nothing that's just really gotten the 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 stamp of absolute uh, approval whoever would be in a position outside of the human condition to stamp that approval Hmm. Uh, but a lot of this comes down to the basic idea of uh you know the deter- determinist view and the indeterminist view so the full pho- views of free will from so, free will yes yeah. so the philosophers uh, democritus and leucippus saw the universe as wholly governed by natural laws and composed of indivisible atoms and, uh, this so they took this determinist view of a life propelled down a flowing stream there's the water of mm-hmm. events. Okay. Aristotle, on the other hand, stressed the individual's responsibility for their actions. The indeterminist view of life as a boat propelling itself through a body of water.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I've always so I've encountered this philosophical distinction before, you know, mm-hmm. like, are you a determinist or not? And essentially that's saying, like, does do you follow the laws of physics or not? <laughs> <laughs> and so I I have to think, well, th- then, of course, yeah, the answer is yes, I, I follow the laws of physics. My brain is composed of matter and it follows the laws of physics. But I don't. Th- and so a lot of people would take this and say, oh, OK, you're a determinist. Then you think you don't really choose what you do. Obviously, that's untrue. I have a subjective experience of choosing what I do and I am choosing. But, uh, I think where the, the determinist versus indeterminist view of the world comes in is while I do choose the things I do, there's no evidence that I could have chosen otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Like, yeah, you're choosing. You're having the experience of choosing, but could you have really made another choice in the, in the multi, we like to think of, Sometimes or I like to think of like this multiverse where there's a different universe to represent every little decision that you you could have made. Mm-hmm. For example, flossing your teeth. <laughs> I, I am I'm am a, a, a big uh, proponent of flossing your teeth. Yeah, I think you should absolutely do it. I know a lot of people have trouble. Getting around to it. Right. So you might think there's an alternate universe uh, in the multiverse where last night you flossed your teeth like you were supposed to. But in reality, is it just a myriad of universes? And in all of them, you and rather in none of them, there's tooth flossing. You're just the the floss goes unused in every single one of them because you are not the type of person that flosses their teeth.
1: (laughs) Or at least you're not ready to become that person yet. Well, whether you did last night or not, what's the evidence that you could have done differently than you did given the exact same starting circumstances? That's true. I call it the the infinite tooth floss theorem. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, this does bring up an interesting thing. Croft's metaphor, I think, is there to. To emphasize this point about free will, like if you were really somehow being controlled against your will uh and it was such that the control was this ultimate mind flare type deep desire you know your your consciousness is realigned to the outside controller's will, and you didn't realize it, how would this type of mind control be at all distinguishable from free will, yeah.
0: Yeah. If if essentially if God is using you as, as a puppet, mm-hmm. if God is 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 influencing the world through you, would it just maybe feel I mean, maybe it would feel a little thrilling. You know, who doesn't want <laughs> to be the glove of the almighty? But uh yeah, could you tell the difference between that and just going about your normal
1: business? So this does seem to suggest that on some level, if such a thing as mind control were possible and it were this deep type, mm-hmm. you know, deep mind management, controlling not just your actions, but your desires, you might not even know it was happening.
0: Yeah, we could all be controlled not to get to just for the sake of argument. I'm not putting forth the conspiracy theory here. But, yeah, we could be all we could all be controlled at any given moment and it would just feel like our normal lives, right? Okay, well, maybe I think we should hit some hard, solid ground. Yeah, let's 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 return to the surface
1: and try to figure out. No, wait a minute. We've talked about the possibilities of mind control and how it would interact with our conceptions, philosophical conceptions about free will, Mm -hmm. our conscious experience. But how could you do it if you were really going to try? Like, do we have neurotechnology devices that allow you to completely control the thoughts and actions of another person? Short answer. I want to say no, uh, and I don't think we're going to, but we, we do have the power to have some kind of very, uh, very simple prescribed types of influences on people's brains. Yes,
0: I would say that we do not have precision instruments, but we do have Blunt instruments.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So let me give you a a quick look through here. If you want a really in-depth look at the state of brain-computer interfaces and brain-to-brain interfaces, you should go back to our December 2015 episode called Brain-to-Brain, the Science of Technotelepathy, where we talked about a lot of these experiments in detail.
0: Do you think there's something to this that? When it comes to the holidays, we can't help but think about mind control. Is it something to do with the, oh,
1: yeah. how the holidays and Christmas are just really pounded into your skull by the media? I think there there may very hmm. well be something there, especially because Santa Claus is getting into our brains. That's right. He he knows. What he's you're thinking. he's not just watching your behavior. <laughs> he's really manipulating it. That's right. He? Uh, Okay, so brief refresher on on these neural interfaces. Uh, So there are ways to get information into and out of the human brain without the usual channels. In other words, this means brain output without speech or body movement, and brain input without perception through the senses. And to get information out of a brain without speech or body movement, there, there are two major approaches. You split them into minimally invasive and more invasive. Mm-hmm. The minimally invasive things are, uh, they're things like, uh, electroencephalography caps or EEG caps. And this looks like a swim cap covered in electrodes. Put some goo on your head. Uh, you put the thing over your head and they can read electrical activity of the brain. But they're very, very crude because they're trying to read your brain through your skull. One really good metaphor I've read to explain this was a researcher who compared reading the brain activity through an EEG cap to trying to follow a professional soccer game by standing outside the stadium in the parking lot. (laughs) That is good. You you can tell when somebody scored a goal, right, Mm -hmm. when there's huge sudden activity but you can't call the game play by play. And I would add maybe with some microphones, you know, a trained computer algorithm and some feedback, you can pick out sound profiles of a few other types of events, uh, which is somewhat true along in the uh, EEG analogy, but it's just not a very sensitive instrument in terms of deep complexity of the brain. Uh, More invasive methods are more sensitive. For example, implanted microelectrodes inside the brain, putting little wires running out through the skull to a wired connection or a transmitter antenna, and you can read the activity down at the neuron level, really, uh, in much more detail, but these require surgery, connection to external equipment, and it's not like we can just read the electrical activity of the brain and and read it like a, you know, uh, like a screen output or something. You know, we don't know the language that it's speaking. So what would be the soccer metaphor for that one? You're watching aliens play a sport in another language. And, <laughs> no, that's okay. not quite uh, – so anyway. But that's the output. So for mind control, we're actually primarily interested not in output methods but in input, in unconventional methods of putting information into the brain such that it has a desired effect upon the mind of the subject, such as like the inception of a belief or a perception or causing action, and putting it into the brain in such a way that it bypasses the normal filters we have for incoming information and commands. Mm -hmm. So if it does no better than somebody telling you verbally to do something, then that's no good, right? It it has to be trying to go straight to some deeper part of your brain that's not going to meet an information filter. Okay. With these input methods, there are also minimally invasive methods. For example, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. And this is actually kind of simple. It uh, means you put a big electromagnetic coil very carefully over a very specific part of the skull, and then you can generate effects in the person's brain and body uh, when you pass current through the coil, one common example would be causing an involuntary twitch of the hand if you position it just right. And this is because, of course, the brain is an electrochemical machine. And it's got, uh, if, if you run magnetic fields, they interact with the electrical current. You may have observed this. Have you ever held a powerful magnet too close to an old TV screen? Did you ever do that for fun? Ooh, I, don't, yeah, I don't think I did. Well, anyway. Yeah. So it's you, fun, can, though? I yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Well, with a, maybe with a TV that you don't need anymore. Okay. Um, I don't know how damaging it actually is. I wouldn't recommend it with any prized electronic equipment uh but but basically yeah you you can interfere with the brain and you can cause some kind of blunt instrument type effects like ah, i made your leg twitch or i made your hand twitch more invasive methods are pretty much the same as the output methods they run wires into your skull with microelectrodes attached to carefully uh designated little spots inside the brain and then they've got to run out through your skull but from what i've read um These motor control takeovers Mm -hmm. you do with these input and output methods, they are they're 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 just perceived as an involuntary twitch. Like sometimes this happens to you. You're just like, oh, I just twitched. You know, you didn't plan on doing it. It just happened. And that's sort of what it feels like. Like when you're just going about your daily business and suddenly you get
0: a shiver, like a full body shiver. Yeah. Like maybe that is the mind controlling agent pulling
1: out of your body. But they're not getting much done just by making the making you shiver. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of these TMS experiments have been called mind control in the media, but I don't buy it. I don't think that's an accurate description because a twitch of the hand, or another common thing, is um, the perception of non-existent lights behind closed eyes. These are called phosphenes. So if you close your eyes and they put uh, the the TMS coil over your your ocular, your your vision, you know, visual cortex, they can make you see these little lights. These are not mind control. These are extremely simple, imprecise stimuli. And for the foreseeable future, it seems like it'd be nearly impossible to use them to get somebody to do something complex that they didn't really want to do. Like, I'm going to make you assassinate our target or whatever.
0: Yeah. Like the idea that you're controlling the mind is ridiculous because the, the mind, I like to think the mind is the the shadow cast by the physical brain. Mm-hmm. And they're not even controlling the brain here. They're basically controlling the body or certain sense information, sensory information by essentially poking at the brain.
1: Right. And th- these are for uh, what well, I, I was trying to focus on motor control. Now, of course, there are other types of neurotechnology mm-hmm. that have been used to sort of change people's uh, susceptibility to certain types of feelings. You know, we've talked about the the research on the God helmet and right. stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of, of cool uh, research out there that that indicates that the future of even mental health treatment mm-hmm. is going to revolve around some of these technologies. But it comes down to that. That situation where we don't have the precise instruments yet, we yeah. have the blunt instruments.
1: Exactly. Even the things like that are blunt instruments. Mm-hmm. They're just capable of producing a very generalized effect. Probably doesn't work on everybody. Doesn't work every time. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it and it doesn't lead to complex motor responses and programmed behaviors. It just is like it's a one-trick pony generally, right? So this makes me think, okay, if hard neurotech can't get us to anything like real mind control, getting somebody to, you know, go go carry out the covert assassination or whatever like that, are there any scientifically plausible ways, uh other ways to bend someone to your will with complex, meaningful, programmed behaviors, beliefs, and perceptions? How about hypnosis?
0: If, if TV is any indication, then yes, anybody can just wander in with a medallion, like a gold medallion on a chain. Yeah, a
1: pocket watch. Yeah, the
0: pocket watch is a big one. Start, uh, wiggling that around and whammo, you're, you're enthralled.
1: Well, I think we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will look at the science of hypnosis. Is it real? Is it bunk? If so, how far can a hypnotist take you and what does it feel like? So for years, I have been very suspicious of the use of hypnosis in science. And I admit, I'd never really read all that deeply into it. It was just one of those things I was peripherally aware of. I knew it from popular culture. And I would often just look at, you know, stuff about hypnosis and think, is this real? Is this real science? It's obvious to me that many uses of hypnosis are bogus 30 ways Mm -hmm. it's. A lot of it is just garbage, and a lot of it is, uh, not not necessarily just garbage, but it is people playing along in a kind of social game. If that makes any sense, there there are social pressures to behave a certain way, right? And that's scenario. not necessarily garbage,
0: depending on how it's presented. Like, right. Like the, the basically, aside from the TV hypnotist, the thing that often comes to mind are stage hypnotists. Yes, they're putting on a show, maybe at an office Christmas party, and. It depends how that's presented. If it's presented like, here's a person with magical powers, mm-hmm. uh, or powers over the mind, uh, maybe you should give them money, yeah, that's bad. But if it's presented as like, here's the evening's entertainment,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's, you know, not necessarily anything nefarious going on there, but it's also very much like a magician's act. Yeah. Where, I shouldn't have said garbage. No, no, but, but I, 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 I get what you're saying, but I'm mm. just fleshing it out a little bit here that yeah. there, it depends on the context. Uh, garbage and entertainment depend on, <laughs> What sort of fees you're uh you're requiring of the participants, I guess
1: uh, but I want to say after doing research for this episode i've had my mind changed yeah i I think I'm convinced did that you I, speak to a hypnotist no I didn't. I didn't i didn't. Okay. I just did a bunch of reading, and I, I think I, i'm convinced that at least in some cases, hypnotists are creating a genuine altered state of consciousness mm-hmm. in which the subject's level of suggestibility is increased and in some cases drastically increased. And I would also say that, at least as far as I can tell, there's nothing especially spooky going on here with hypnosis. Hypnotism, I think, may be compared somewhat to meditation, mm-hmm. where an altered state of mind is brought about by mental exercises without necessitating the use of drugs or neurotechnology.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, so so often the the hypnotic experience, the trance, is described in very relaxing terms. It's mm-hmm. you're in a relaxed. State you're also, but then you're also in a susceptible state, yeah, but only but within reason
1: yeah i'll I'll definitely get more into the details in a minute, but i I wanted to think about the idea of hypnotism. And it's linked to the idea of mind control. And this actually goes way back. Hypnotism certainly does come up when considering methods of mind control sort of from the inception. Uh, so the French physician and early clinical hypnotist, Georges Gilles de la Tourette, who Tourette syndrome is named after. Oh, yes. uh he He was in his home in uh, December 1893 when he was met by a patient of his who claimed that after she had been hypnotized under the care of Gilles de la Tourette and his colleagues, uh, someone had begun remotely controlling her mind, and she shot him. She shot him in the back of the neck oh. and damaged his head. Um, this woman was named Rose Camper, and after she was arrested, she gave the following statement. Obviously, this is an English translation of it, but she said, quote, Within me there are actually two different people, one physical and one intellectual. My thoughts no longer belong only to me, but also to those who possess me. During the day my intellect allows me to resist the powers which enter me without my knowledge, but at night I am overpowered, and it is to defend myself against these impulses that I bought a revolver in the Rue de Rivoli two months ago. Rivoli, I don't know how you pronounce that. But yeah, so she's describing that she believes she's she's suffering mind control. <laughs> she's been put under hypnosis by these therapists in a hospital setting uh, in, in 19th century France, and she thinks her mind is being controlled. Now, I would say that no, no historians or anybody really think that uh, Miss Camper's doctors were actually controlling her remotely against her will. But hypnosis seemed to give her this subjective sensation so is it possible to control somebody's mind at the levels we've been talking about, this, uh, you know, the mind management type level with hypnosis? And if so, what does it feel like for the subject of the hypnotic control? Okay, so first of all, what is hypnosis? Basically, if it's working as suspected or as suggested by people who believe in it, hypnotization is an altered state of consciousness characterized by relaxation Narrowing of focus on a single all-absorbing stimulus, sort of usually the hypnotist's voice where you push out all of the other influences and distractions and you just intensely focused on this one thing this hypnotist talking to you and giving you instructions. And also it's characterized by heightened suggestibility or the lack of inhibition in following instructions or perceiving suggested perceptions that aren't really there. An example might be like, you know, they say a balloon is attached to your leg and lifting it up gently and and you actually have this sensation of a lightning and you start to raise your ankle up. I mean, it, that is exactly
0: guided meditation too. you know, the idea that someone is is taking you on this sort of mental journey to read, lead to this relaxed state. Um, I've also heard uh, hypnosis in the, the hypnotic trance state uh, described in terms of uh, heightened imagination, mm-hmm. not unlike daydreaming and a certain loss of self that is. uh uh, about like you know, it's it's really it's relatable to getting really lost in a movie or book.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there's a sort of uh, sense of dissociation that's yeah. often associated with it. Dissociation associated. Uh, but yeah, so another big thing to uh, be aware of is that pretty much everybody agrees that different people have highly different scores of hypnotic suggestibility. Mm-hmm. So you might be highly hypnotizable, and I might be completely unhypnotizable. Many. People People are pretty much impossible to hypnotize. Some can be hypnotized, but they're not highly suggestible. And then some small subset of people—I've read estimates of around ten percent or maybe fifteen percent, something like that—are highly suggestible under hypnosis. They go into a hypnotic procedure; they're they're put under hypnosis, and they can be talked into perceiving, believing, and doing a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. This is so. We're, this is where we're getting. Potentially into the cluck like a chicken area. Right. That's the yes. the classic stage hypnotist trick,
1: though. That's one of the tough ones, because if, if you're again referring to the stage hypnotist, the question is like, well, I mean, are people just are they just playing along? Does the hypnotist right. actually have some kind of power over them? Other than just the fact that they're in a social setting they're in a performance they want to they want everybody there to have a good time, so they just sort of do what they're told because it's funny
0: yeah, i mean it's a stage power it's the same power a magician a magician doesn't actually have power over uh physical reality, but on the stage, they have power, they command attention, there are certain rules, there's a certain uh rhythm and ritual of things that is if you're not familiar with it before you attend the show, then the magician makes you aware of it. They establish the rules. And so does the stage uh, hypnotist.
1: Yeah. And so there there are a few things to say about this. One is that while this certainly isn't good enough to count as scientific data, it's worth noting the cornucopia of first-hand reports of people who claim to have been put under hypnosis, who demonstrated hypnotic suggestibility. They followed instructions in some cases to, to very strange ends. And they claim at least that they didn't feel like they were faking it. Some people say they were faking it, but lots of people say, no, it didn't feel like that at all. I, you know, it was totally, it felt like it was outside my power. Mm-hmm. Another thing to consider would be there are some brain scanning experiments that uh, appear to show different uses of the brain when asked to perceive something as real during hypnosis versus just being asked to imagine the same thing as real when not under hypnosis. Uh, and so this is take that for what it's worth. This is also subject to the skeptical screen door. We might want to always keep between ourselves and these sorts of brain scanning studies for the time being. And we're all familiar with the problems with those. Another good thing to point out is that there is not any good evidence or nothing I came across suggested there's any good evidence that hypnosis can help people recover lost memories. I think you guys covered this some in your Satanic Panic episode, right? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's kind of a whole can of worms there. But, yeah, you get into the whole you're trying to recover lost memories. but. There's all, there's a greater possibility that you're just, uh, essentially incepting, planting memories yeah.
1: instead. Yeah. There seems to be some evidence that people, uh, that hypnosis can create the impression that memories are being recovered, but there's no actual recall of additional information. Right. Yeah. You're just, you're just tweaking,
0: you're tweaking the memories, creating new memories. But, uh, as far as like restoring lost ones, probably not.
1: How about another thing? How about a placebo effect? this would be kind of different than faking, right? Mm -hmm. This would be what if it's just belief in the power of hypnosis that makes people susceptible to hypnosis? You know, what if you're only responding to the hypnotist because you think hypnotism works? That's true. That that has to be a, a major player as well. Yeah, it's always a concern, but there are a couple of studies that, if valid, I think would seem to uh, argue against the placebo effect's ability to explain all of the effects of hypnosis. One of these that I looked at was called "Can Expectation Enhance Response to Suggestion Deautomization or Deautomatization?" Oh, what a they got these great terms, don't they? Uh, it illuminates a conundrum from consciousness and cognition in 2012. And uh, the authors, I'm not going to get into their whole experiment, but essentially it involved comparing the results of people who were actually put under hypnosis with people who were expecting to be put under hypnosis and had been conditioned to expect that they were highly suggestible to hypnosis, but then were not put under hypnosis. And they said in the end that their findings intimate that, quote, at least in the present experimental context, expectation hardly correlates with and is unlikely to be a primary determinant of high hypnotic suggestibility. So they found that the placebo effect, uh, which is just expecting to be hypnotizable, can perhaps explain some small amount of hypnosis response, but definitely not all of it. So obviously what we need to do here is look up the papers where they put somebody under hypnosis and tried to get them to assassinate somebody, right?
0: Oh, yes, those those studies. Um Somehow I don't think
1: those really, those tend to pass the board, do they? No, ethics, you know, ethics limitations Mm -hmm. again. So how far can you push hypnosis, uh, in research in a university or clinical setting? Well, they don't tend to take it too far in those settings. Uh, but I do have one really interesting example that we're going to get to in a minute. But, uh, first I thought, thought it would be good to look at places where we can count on people to be unethical, which is that governments have tried to take hypnosis to the limit. Uh, hypnosis among other types of experiments. Uh, so for example, we now throw, know through, uh, declassified documents that the CIA conducted projects in the 1950s through the 1960s designed to study and implement essentially mind control techniques, special interrogation techniques that they thought might lead to true mind control. And these techniques included the administration of drugs such as morphine and LSD, uh, things like forced isolation. Yeah. and John then, C. Lilly, that's where we saw the birth of the isolation tank. Exactly. But then hypnosis. And these usually would all get wrapped up under one single cryptonym, which is a, you know, secret code name. Uh, in documents at the time. And these cryptonyms were first Bluebird and then Project Artichoke (laughs) and then the one we all know, MKUltra, which is what it all eventually became.
0: That's the one that resonates. It sounds far more evil than than Operation Artichoke.
1: Yeah, so we certainly don't know what happened in all these experiments uh, or all these operations, but we have some declassified documents. And based on the ones I've looked at, the results based on these techniques appear to me to be underwhelming. Uh, I want to look at one Declassified CIA memo from January 1954 about the possibility of hypnotized assassination under Artichoke. So this memo, released an internal memo from the CIA, and it reveals plans to use quote artichoke, which it, artichoke appears throughout the document in all caps. <laughs> it's pretty funny,
0: almost as if to uh, like like take the um, the uh, the pain out of this the, the, yeah. the article.
1: It's the euphemism. It's yeah. the, the the packet of aspirin's always at one's elbow. Operation, you know, cuddle bear or something. Yeah, instead of uh, drug induced hypnosis and torture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they. They had plans in this document to use artichoke to gain mind control over an unnamed foreign operative who had stopped cooperating with the agents and to turn him into a hypnotized assassin, much like the Manchurian candidate. Uh, And so I just want to read a quote. They say, quote, because the subject is a heavy drinker, it was proposed that the individual could be surreptitiously drugged through the medium of an alcoholic cocktail at a social party. Artichoke applied and the subject (laughs) induced to perform the act of attempted assassination at some later date. And so this would seem to be kind of like the Manchurian candidate. It would be this post hypnotic suggestion. Could we hypnotize somebody and then put an idea in their head that would later lead to them carrying out instructions, you know, to do our bidding? And the author of the document, I think, seems to be hedging very strongly on whether this would work and ultimately concludes the answer is probably no, giving several reasons. For example, the subject would be unwilling and thus the assassination would have to be involuntary. They they cite this as a major problem, kind of making you think that, okay, so maybe it's not so much mind control after all, if a major problem is that the subject is unwilling.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the, the staples of hypnotism is you can't make someone go
1: against their will with this exactly right. They will always tell you hypnotists insist that you you can't hypnotize somebody if they're not willing to be hypnotized. Mm-hmm. You have to play along in the beginning. Um, but they, they give another thing, uh, quote, access to the subject would only happen at this social party among a mixed group of cleared and uncleared personnel. And then finally, to me, this one's really interesting. They say, quote, we would have none or at most very limited physical control and custody over the subject. And to me, it, this sounds like they're just complaining about the fact that if they go to this cocktail party, they're not going to be able to get this guy alone and coerced very much to hypnotize him. But uh, I, I was reading a blog post about this document over at the National Security Archive blog, which deals with these kinds of release materials. And the, the writer of this post, Nate Jones, interprets this sentence to mean that the hypnosis itself offered no or at most very limited physical control over the custody of the subject. And look Looking at it again, I think it can be read that way. In other words, the technique is not very potent. And so it's not clear to me which interpretation of that statement is the correct one, but I thought that was interesting. It Mm. could just be that, you know, no matter how much you hypnotize somebody, even if you drug them first, you're not going to have that much physical control over them. And but this makes me think that at least according to these intelligence officers own estimation of their powers, you can't really use drugs, psychological harassment and hypnosis to make somebody do something drastic like assassination if they're fully opposed to do it, if it is not their will to do it.
0: Yeah, they've got to already be on board with with it. They are. They already have to be up for whatever.
1: Yeah. And that does sort of affirm the consequent, though, which is that. If the conditions are just right, for example, if the subject already sort of wants to commit this assassination that you're trying to get them to do, I wonder if hypnosis could help push them over the edge into doing it. And so I think that's a possibility. Uh, Reading this document, it does not sound to me like these intel operators were very confident in their ability to achieve effective mind control via artichoke, which included hypnosis.
0: Now I do want to point out that the declassified documents did not look into the use of just really good artichoke dip. Oh uh, man. (laughs) As a a way to manipulate potential assassins.
1: My wife Rachel's mom makes amazing artichoke dip. Ah. Who do you know who makes really good artichoke dip? I feel like everybody's got somebody in their social circle, right?
0: Um, Well, my wife makes a has a recipe for a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I feel like this is horrible, but I have memories. These are memories that have probably been warped. But I remember like some horrible chain restaurant is having like really good artichoke dip at some point. I can't remember which one it was, but it was like it was served in a bread bowl and then you eat the bowl.
1: (laughs) Oh no. Yeah.
0: Oh bread bowls. They need to bring that back. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, you don't have to wash the bowl. You
1: just eat the bowl.
0: I think more things should be in bread bowls.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, (laughs) even bread. Where was the place where the artichoke dip was basically just artichokes in their Alfredo sauce? Oh, yeah. I don't know.
0: I don't remember that one. But of course, one of the things is the artichokes on their own, like just steamed artichokes are
1: dipped in butter. Yeah. Are wonderful. So. Uh, I highly agree with you there. Yeah. Okay. One more thing on the CIA uh, assessment of interrogation. This, uh, there was also an article I looked at by a guy named Desheer, who uh, this was a later document that was just evaluating the usefulness of hypnosis in an interrogation situation. Mm-hmm. And he, this guy essentially concluded that um, it, it would be difficult to use hypnosis to get people to give up protected information in interrogation, since hypnosis is almost impossible without a willing subject. Uh, but he did say that the hypnosis quote, the hypnosis situation may be more useful than the hypnosis itself. And what does this mean? Well, I I was thinking about it like this what if you go back to the placebo effect, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you have a captured, you, you've got somebody captured by American intel operatives. You're held prisoner along with a few other captives who are unknown to you working with your captors. And they tell you this tale about there's this master hypnotist interrogator who makes it impossible to resist giving up information. And they all claim that they've been interrogated and they were powerless to keep secrets while under this guy's trance. And then the interrogator comes in and initiates this hypnosis scenario and interrogates the real captive, it might make you, you know, less likely to protect information simply by placebo. You expect to give it up and you do.
0: You're. They present a narrative in which it is OK for you to share your secrets. Yeah,
1: that's another thing. It's mm-hmm. an excuse for you. Yeah. Like you don't have to feel so bad about betraying your, you know, your, your. Overlords.
0: Yeah, I mean, look at this this hypnotist. They have a big scar on their face, and the, we have all these blinky lights behind him. Clearly, he really knows what he's doing. Uh huh. You're gonna crumble. Just go ahead and let it out. It's all fine. Tell us the the codes.
1: Yeah. So I'd say conclusion from looking at some of the CIA and intel stuff, it, it seems to suggest to me that there are serious limits to the power of coercive hypnosis, mm-hmm. even for suggestible people there tends to be a sort of you know, like a willpower limit lock that yeah. prevents them from doing things that are egregiously against their will, uh, added to the fact that it's nearly impossible to hypnotize an unwilling person. But OK, let's ignore all these problems and say somebody is successfully hypnotizing you against your will to suggest they're taking control of your body and your mind, full on mind management type terminology, you know, that they've got you uh, a real time control of you and you are highly susceptible to hypnotic suggestion. What would it feel like? Well, you would think there would be really no way to answer this question, but I came across a really interesting article that sort of does provide an answer. So there was a July 2014 story for BBC Future reported by a guy named David Robson. And in this story, uh, Robson's he He's going to later in the story be hypnotized to to undergo the sensation of mind control. But he's speaking to this guy named uh, Eamon Walsh, who is a psychologist in Great Britain who uses hypnosis to investigate psychoses at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. And Walsh wants to create what are known as virtual patients through hypnosis. I thought this idea was interesting to essentially he he wants to temporarily induce delusions and psychoses in otherwise healthy patients through hypnosis so that the disorders can be better studied and understood in a situation where a person is not actually permanently suffering from them.
0: This doesn't sound like a plot for a horror movie at all, Joe. <laughs> uh,
1: so uh, Robson took a test, he says, for hypnotic suggestibility. And of course, uh, as, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned this earlier, but generally these tests, they put you in a relaxed or hypnotized state and then see how well you conform to suggestions of perceptions by the hypnotist. You're holding a heavy weight in your hand or something like that. And does their hand sink when you tell them that? And uh Robson claims he scored very high. He was in the top 10 percent of the population for hypnotic suggestibility. So he's one of these people mm-hmm. who is uh, liable to be mind controlled. Now, there's been plenty of research into whether hypnotism uh, could help patients in dealing with all kinds of things like pain and stress, uh some positive results, but I wouldn't be fully convinced yet. But there have been some positive results about whether you can induce delusions and psychoses. In otherwise healthy patients through hypnosis and and to what extent these uh, induced delusions mirror real delusions. And the results seem to be that they do mirror them. For example, there was one study published in The Lancet in 2000 that uh, looked at PET scans of a person who had a true case of what's known as hysterical paralysis, which is a neurological condition where you have the feeling that you can't move a specific part of your body despite having no physical disability to prevent it. So like, ah, I can't move my leg even though there's nothing wrong with you. So there was a man who couldn't move his left leg due to this condition. And then there is another person who is told he couldn't move his left leg under hypnosis. And according to the researchers, these subjects PET scans matched enough that they were saying, "Okay, it looks like the hypnotic suggestion of this delusion to some extent mirrors the real psychological paralysis. Mm -hmm. He's not just pretending. So since then, psychologists have been using hypnosis to try to produce uh, something like these virtual patients, which uh, which they claim are having genuine experiences of delusions like Capgras delusion, which is we you know, I think we've discussed that before, but it's this imposter syndrome, you, right? You uh, believe that people, you know, have been replaced by doppelgangers or imposters who are walking around in their skin.
0: Yeah. And there there's like a whole suite of different related uh, conditions that involve fake people. Or double people, or doppelgangers, et cetera.
1: Right. So the idea here is a hypnotist, to the right person with a high level of suggestibility, can temporarily give you this delusion. Hmm. That is that that's that's scary. Yeah. And it, t- to be fair, this is what they claim. I mean, yeah. who, who knows uh, exactly to what extent this is true? But this is what these researchers claim, and uh, they also claim they've been able to achieve things like uh, mirror misidentification. So you. Don't recognize yourself in a mirror if you're told not to under hypnosis. Hmm. And while they claim that these delusions are truly believed afterwards, after they're brought out of hypnosis, the delusion completely van- vanishes. Uh, the subject is healthy, unharmed. They go about their normal life uh, and everything's the same. And of course they say that this uh this gives them an advantage in treating mental illness because they can alter conditions to better understand the nature of the delusion and they can test treatments on a healthy patient without having to risk them on someone who has a real mental illness. Um and another thing that's worth noting is this might work better for some conditions than others, right? Uh, like the, they speak to one researcher in the article. The, the reporter, uh, ha, talks to somebody who's somewhat critical, who thinks it may work more on things like hysterical paralysis where I can't move my leg. Um, but not for something like schizophrenia.
0: Right. You're, you're ultimately dealing with very, very simple delusions. Yeah. Like I was just, like as you were talking about this, I was trying to imagine the scenario of not being able to move my leg and I can easily, I can, I can almost, Without any hypnotist, hypnotism involved at all, I can kind of put myself in that situation, like sitting here, not moving my left leg, mm-hmm. and then asking myself, can I move my left leg? Well, I'm not moving it now. I'm not moving it now. So I can, I can imagine that. I can certainly imagine, I, I know from looking in a mirror, <laughs> it's not that difficult to look in a mirror and start convincing yourself that that's not you because for one hand well, on one hand it's not you it's a reversal of you uh thanks to the the wonders of of optical uh, reflection <laughs> but uh but th- these are far d- these are not like drastically different mind states right this is and it's not the 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 hearing of auditory hallucinations or the outright glimpsing of uh, of, of visual hallucinations
1: yeah and that's an interesting thing to think about too um so if you are having a a delusion that is merely like a denial of reality mm-hmm. that's one thing i i think it's got to be somehow fundamentally different if you have a delusion that has content Yeah. If you know what I mean, like something's got to fill in the blank if you're hearing voices or something like that.
0: Like it's the difference between me saying with hypnosis, saying, Joe, everyone in your life basically looks the same. It's basically the same person. All right. That's kind of subjective Mm -hmm. and and all. But if I were to say, Joe, there is a demon knitting in the corner of the podcast room right now. Uh Look at it. Behold
1: it. Then it's not knitting; it's crocheting. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah it, it's a totally different uh, situation, and and it, just a, a, a far greater stretch for the for a mind to reach that delusion
1: right but then so robson goes in for a procedure that does generate content Mm. and this is the interesting part so he he submits to this type of mind control experiment where he's he's put in a a fake brain scanner and he's guided into a hypnotic state by uh, this guy walsh and he's given a prompt the prompt Mm. says uh, the prompt is about this, this imaginary engineer who's introduced in the hypnotic state. And the prompt says, The engineer has developed a way of taking control of your thoughts from the inside. He does this because he's fascinated by mind control and wants to apply the most direct method of controlling your thoughts. He's doing this to advance his research into mind control. You will soon be aware of the engineer inserting his thoughts. So, uh, so Robson says he's got a pen in his hand and he's got a sheet of paper on his lap and he's supposed to, uh, hear a word and then finish the sentence under, uh, some different scenarios. So one is the scenario where the hypnotist tells him that the engineer in this prompt is whispering the words, uh, to write directly into his brain. So he's having the words supplied to him and then. He's told to imagine that the engineer is able to direct the movements of his hand. So this is more like the, you know, the the NMF, right? The one where you are a passenger, your consciousness is a passenger and something else yes. is controlling your body. And then finally, uh, sort of both at the same time, the engineer is in complete control of both your thoughts and your movements. Yeah, and that's total UMF right there. And so just to describe what this scenario felt like, I'm going to quote from, uh, Robson. He says, quote, the first scenario only had minimal effect. I seem to have to wait a little before the words come suddenly, as if from nowhere, but it doesn't feel so different to my normally sporadic mind, but when Walsh instead tells me the engineer has now taken over my movements, it's much more noticeable. My hand seems to move in a jerky, mechanical fashion, and it feels like my fingers are dancing to their own tune. It is then that I also begin to get flashes of the engineer himself, who I picture as a hunched man with a wide grin and a long gray pony I <laughs> love it. it gives the mind-control man a ponytail. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah, I was picturing something more, uh, you know, like one of the characters in Dark City or something. Oh,
1: yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Mr. Book.
0: Yeah, yeah, Mr. Book standing in the corner.
1: Uh But then Robson continues... By the time we reach the third set of suggestions, where Walsh tells me that the engineer will now control my hand movements and my thoughts, the engineer's power over me uh, becomes much more vivid. My writing becomes faster and more intense, and I get the distinct feeling that I am watching myself from the outside. At points, it feels like I can almost hear the engineer directing his thought control machine. It's only when Walsh ends the session and counts back up to 20 that I fully realize how strange the sensation was. A little more like the moment of lucidity once you've, once you awake from a fevered dream. Hmm. Uh, so it's an interesting article. I'd recommend going, uh, going to check it out on the BBC future website. But anyway, uh, you know, Walsh says this is pretty much in keeping with what other subjects have, uh, have reported and. I think that's interesting that that you can somewhat have this sensation of mind control, even when there is when it's just the suggestion of mind control here. Right. Like he's not actually having his actions dictated from the outside, but he's being given the suggestion that his actions are being dictated from the outside. And in the hypnotic state, he does seem to feel this as true.
0: Yeah, it's, I guess the part that amazed me the most was just the seeing, quote unquote, seeing of the engineer. Because everything else, it's, it's, uh, cognition, I feel like is sometimes, it's like riding a bicycle, you know? Yeah. And you're fine while you're doing it, but if you stop to really think about how am I, how am I doing this? How am I maintaining balance? Uh, and so forth, then you potentially run the risk of falling off, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's, it's one thing to start thinking about cognition. And thinking about your, your mind and getting, and, and either buying into different ideas about how it's working or, or seeing it in a sort of tilted way. Like if someone's telling you, oh, your, your mind, your mind works this way, there's an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other and they're both telling you to do things. Right. Like someone tells you that and you buy into it enough. Yeah. You can start interpreting your cognitive processes in the same way. But to actually see the demon or the angel, like that's the that the, that's the greater stretch.
1: Well, that's one of the things that's interesting about cognition is th- there is no real I mean, there is really a physical brain, mm-hmm. but I would say there is really no physical manifestation of cognition. Right. There's brain activity. But when you're talking about the cognition, the you know, the intangible conscious state that's taking place in your mind there's no physical embodiment of it, so it is necessarily described by metaphors. All the ways we have of envisioning it are metaphors. They're all the angel and the demon to a various extent.
0: Yeah, and when you start talking about altered states of consciousness, I mean, you can get an altered state of consciousness by stubbing your toe on a coffee table. If you wanna, if you want to lend the interpretation to that, you know, it's like whatever changes the way you're thinking and the way that you, your your mind is
1: working, right? Right. So anyway, I think this article is interesting because it does uh, paint a picture. Now, we should, of course, remind you that this is, again, this is a first-hand report. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to think Robson's lying about what he experienced. But at the same time, you know, it, it's – we're just going on his first hand claims right um but so there is this uh if we're to believe it, this sort of powerful experience you can have supplying some kind of content and feeling like you are having content supplied to your mind that is outside your control and directing your actions outside your control, and yet we have in real life uh the the knowledge that uh it's really seems like people can't be hypnotized to do things that they really don't want to do right. So where do these phenomena meet in the middle? Uh, one thing I thought would be interesting to do is just look all over the Internet <laughs> at more <laughs> firsthand reports about just what people say when when they're asked about what hypnosis feels like. Uh, and obviously, it's all subjective reporting. Probably some people are making things up. But if you read enough of it, you sort of pick up on some patterns that are probably broadly representative of people's experiences of hypnosis. One thing that I think is worth saying is you do read plenty of people who do describe simply faking, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, I was going along with the hypnotist's instructions just for fun or because of social pressure. Uh, and while I suspect this is often true, it occurs to me that it would be an especially effective form of mind control that made people perform suggested actions against their will and also convince them that they were following instructions because it was fun or just because I felt like it anyway.
0: <laughs> That's interesting, especially when I, I I can't help but think of it in terms of of say an exercise class, a yoga class, where you have uh-huh. or or meditation classes. But certainly, exercise and yoga is a great example because you have a person of. Some authority, at least in the classroom environment, that is instructing everyone and everyone obeys those commands. Right. But we we that's part of the contract, though. We're there to obey those commands. And there's something liberating about losing yourself in the instruction of another another person. Exactly. If it's a place of safety.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally see what you mean there. A few more things that are commonly reported. uh, Extreme Relaxation narrowing of focus on the hypnotist's voice. This can be described as becoming unaware of or at least uninterested in the rest of your surroundings. This seems to go along with what people suggest is the core of hypnosis anyway. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found is there's a big divide in reports about the level of continuity of consciousness throughout the experience and what I mean by that is that some people report that they knew what was going on the entire time and could remember everything afterwards. Others report a subjective loss of consciousness or lack of memories for time under hypnosis uh, as if they went to sleep. And I'm led to suspect that in many of the latter cases, maybe the person actually was falling asleep or in some liminal state near sleep. I wonder about that. Um, a lack of inhibition. Mm-hmm. A lot of people seem to report because a lot of these these uh, stories come from people who are hypnotized to these stage shows and stuff like that that alcohol is involved oh, yeah. and alcohol seems to intensify the subjective depth of the trance not a big surprise um what what about the the idea of violating people's will making them do stuff they really don't want to do well uh plenty of firsthand reports along these lines of the the clinical reports that you know so i was under hypnosis told not to be able to say a word and then I was truly unable to say it when I was prompted. So there's that, but then at the same time, plenty of other reports from people who insist that they could not be made to do anything they really didn't want to do. Uh, sometimes following many instructions until something very objectionable is su- suggested. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, a common thing people report is feeling very rested after the hypnosis session as if they'd just woken up from a nap.
0: Yeah, they've had a very calming, relaxed experience. I mean, this is one of the reasons that you, that you see some, uh, you see the use of hypnosis and hypnotherapy mm-hmm. and also, uh, uh, hypnosurgery where it's, uh, where you're using, you're basically, you're putting the body into a relaxed state and a relaxed mm-hmm. state of body and mind is, uh, is, is helpful when say entering certain, uh, surgical or sort of semi-surgical scenarios. I've heard of scenarios where, uh, individuals have undergone endoscopy, uh, one in particular uh, where it was, uh, one of the, the, endoscopy cameras, uh, going up the urethra. Ugh. And, uh, this, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't, uh, they were having to have this, uh, done regularly enough that they, they couldn't undergo, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, medication to, mm-hmm. to, to numb them out. So the individual started using, uh, self-hypnosis to reach that kind of relaxed state. Where they could undergo this uh, this procedure without uh, you know undue stress, and you can sort of you could have interpret you could interpret that in two different ways, right? You could go with a very hypnosis is magic interpretation and say, well, this person felt no pain and no sensation, and we were able to sit there serenely like a like a Buddha while the this uh, procedure was uh, conducted, or you could simply say, well. Instead of entering into this scenario in a highly agitated physical and mental state, Mm -hmm. they were able to calm themselves and calm their body. And, of course, the procedure went more smoothly in the same way that it, uh, you know, uh, brushing my my kid's teeth. It goes more smoothly if he just sits there for once and doesn't move. And I'm not having to wrestle him. uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the floor of the bathroom, uh-huh. or or cutting a cutting a dog or a, or a cat's uh, uh, nails, right? Oh yeah, but yeah. If they're going to fight, it's going to be worse for everybody. But if they're but, but relaxing, they're going to fight, yeah, and they're going to fight.
1: You wish you could hypnotize your dog, don't you? <laughs> uh, um, okay, well, I think we should bring it back to the experience of the yes. struggle of mind control to wrap this episode up. So. One of the things I was thinking about is the movie scene, you know, mind controls in all kinds of movies. And all these mind control movies have the scene of the person struggling with a gun. Oh, yes. The subject is all sweaty and groaning while they fight against these forces of external control. Uh, you know, the gun's in your hand, and you're struggling to point it away from the assassination target because you're not an assassin. You know, mm-hmm. you're being controlled by the outside, uh, and uh, you know this mind flayer equivalent is guiding you to try to carry out this killing. And it's if you're in a battle of physical strength, right? right. With a set of invisible hands pushing you toward the mind flayer's will. And then the you you you're using your own muscles to push back if it were possible to be, you know, real time mind managed, mm-hmm. fully mind controlled. And I don't really think that is possible uh, given today's tools and techniques. I don't see it happening like that because there's no external force to strain against with your muscles. Any true conflict of will would be internal. Right. Yeah. So one common example we have of what it feels like to have an internal conflict is the struggle for self-discipline. Very common experiences. People are on a diet, right? Right. You're on a diet. You want to shove a whole pizza in your face, uh, and the struggle doesn't take <laughs> place in your arms as you're holding the pizza. It takes place in your consciousness, in this uh, you know untethered realm of the mind between your base desires and your sense of self-control, and it takes place before you get up and walk over to the pizza box, right? Not while the pizza's in your hand on the way to your mouth,
0: right? If you're going to observe this in somebody, you're going to see them standing, say a few. Feet- away from the table with the pizza, kind of eyeing it longingly. They're not going to have the pizza in one hand, like trying to hold the pizza arm back from their open mouth, right? uh sweating bullets the whole time. Now, the the ship is sailed once pizza is in hand.
1: Bye-bye pizza ship. Yeah. <laughs> now, the other day we were talking about this, Robert, and I thought you had a really great example of a, of a movie that does show an internal conflict of will.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are. There are probably a a number of examples of this, but for me, my go to example, when I think of a a tremendous scene in which an actor is able to portray inner conflict and that the inner turmoil over a decision is uh, the Godfather. There's a wonderful scene where Al Pacino, young Al Pacino, uh, young, talented Al Pacino, uh, understated Al Pacino as Michael Corleone is uh, in the restaurant uh, he has this meeting with the rival gang, uh,
1: individual, the Turk. The guy okay. who's just had his father shot.
0: Yeah. So he's been through a lot of turmoil, a lot of personal, uh, trauma, and he's been pressured by the family. He's been pressured by just the, 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 the severe nature of, of the scenario, the, the threats against them to meet the Turk. And then he's going to go into the bathroom. He's going to get a gun from behind the toilet bowl, come back out. Shoot the Turk and then walk out of the restaurant. Yeah, uh, and but he doesn't come out guns a blazing. He comes back out and he sits down. Yeah, and there's this wonderful scene where the Turk's still talking to him, trying to convince him of one thing or the other, and you just see the the mental wheels turning. My, Michael's not moving at all, mm-hmm. but you just the the sense of of his inner struggle is just palpable. That is what. I think, mind that this is the mind control, the struggle. Uh, this against is the struggle mind against mind control that we would see. That is not a scene where Michael Corleone is is, you know, shaking and gripping the gun. Once he decides to do it, he stands up and he does it.
1: But again, I we, we mentioned this earlier. I I don't know if the idea of a struggle against mind control is really so much plausible. Even in you imagine the far future, you've got these incredibly powerful neurotechnologies I don't know. Somehow I don't see it being a a, a battle of internal will. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me that you would either be in control of your actions primarily and maybe have some kind of uh, sentiment seeded that you could be fighting against. I can see that more traditional types of seeding where they've uh they're trying to influence your behavior with feelings or something like that Um or. You're just completely dominated. You're completely controlled. You don't even know that you're being controlled and you have no resistance whatsoever. Yeah.
0: How could you fight back with your willpower when your willpower is the very thing that has been possessed?
1: Exactly. If if you didn't realize it, in what way would the mind control be different than it just being your decision?
0: Yeah. And therefore, why resist? Your your new uh, neural masters. Why fight back?
1: Robert, you're the voice of evil here. (laughs) You're the demon on the shoulder. No. If if you have the power to resist those who are telling you to do evil, you should resist.
0: Well, I think one of the important things is... uh is to to know at what point to resist once they've already grasped your will it's too late but mind control in in real life often takes place at uh, far in far more subtler ways yeah um, I always come back to that saying if someone if someone can can tell you what to read and what to watch, mm-hmm. then they can tell you how to think they can tell you what to think
1: yeah the the real form of mind control is the mundane form of mm-hmm. mind control. the kind that actually exists is the kind we encounter every day yeah. And, and that's what we should be on our guard against.
0: Yeah, all those little battles of mind control, uh, not so much the, the epic war.
1: Well said, Robert. Oh.
0: All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, a crash course in mind control, uh, some of the, the, the hardware that would, that can slash will make it happen as well as good old fashioned hypnotism and its ability, uh, to varying degrees uh, control our behavior. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics, if you want to check out the landing page for this episode with links out to some of the resources we mentioned here, head on over to stuff to blow your Mind.com. That's where you'll find the podcast episode the videos, the blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram,
1: all of those things. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. (laughs) So it is difficult to do it